UMC's prescription pickup is fast, convenient, and now available at community clinics and our main campus. Just call in your prescription request, drive to one of our locations, and get your medication without ever leaving your vehicle. We have designated parking spots reserved especially for curbside pickup. To find a curbside pharmacy closest to you, go to umclpaso.org slash pharmacy. That's umclpaso.org slash pharmacy. At UMC, we care for El Paso. It could have happened to anyone. And it can happen at any time. But it happened to her, Sofia Martinez. She went to an ATM on a Friday night. While pulling cash, Sofia was ambushed. The attack was caught on surveillance camera. And so was the moment the gunman forced the Burgess High School senior to drive off with him in the car. It could happen to anybody else's daughter, wife, mother, if they, they approach the ATM in the dark by themselves. Sophia's body was found in the desert. She had been raped and shot numerous times. I was shocked to hear that something like that would ever happen here in El Paso. Her sisters, her mother, were stunned. Police asked everyone for information that led to her killer, but the trail went cold for months. The men who were responsible for this heinous act were eventually caught, but not before the crime traumatized the community. This is not something that we normally see here in El Paso. People wanted to see the conclusion of this. They, they needed to know that this was over. Abduction at an ATM, the murder of Sofia Martinez. It's this episode of KVIA ABC 7's Borderland Crimes. Friday, March 10th, 2000, springtime in El Paso, Texas. For Sofia Martinez, that meant it was time to get out and enjoy the weekend. Spring break is here, graduation was approaching, and the 18-year-old was living it up. This night in particular, Sofia was meeting a guy on a blind date. They were going to meet at the Old Plantation, otherwise known as the OP, downtown. At the time, the gay club had some of the best music on the scene. Sofia got dressed and said goodbye to her mother, Lourdes, and younger sister, 16-year-old Marianne, as she headed out for the night. But she never made it to the OP. 
Saturday morning. Um, I woke up and I didn't, I didn't see her or anything, but I figured she was in her room sleeping. A bleary-eyed Marianne Martinez, wearing glasses and no makeup, had clearly been crying when she told a reporter she later realized Sophia wasn't in her room. She wasn't anywhere in their East El Paso home. Sofia's mom, Lourdes, filed a missing person report with the El Paso police. She laid out everything she knew, what Sofia was wearing, including the shoes her mom thought were a size too small, where she was going, what she was driving, and what time she was last seen. Sofia's mom gave officers a photo of her daughter. It was Sofia's senior picture. She was in a purple graduation gown. Burgess's school colors are purple and gold. A purple cap with a gold tassel sat atop the brunette's straight hair, which flipped up to touch the top of her shoulders. Her makeup was light and natural around her almond-shaped eyes, but Sophia wore a shock of red on her full lips, which were spread in a smile. It was an image marking what should have been a momentous milestone in Sophia's young life. But instead, it turned into a haunting reminder of a future denied to the high school senior. Not even 12 hours passed from the time Sophia's mom filed that police report to when state police in New Mexico were called to a potential crime scene in Chaparral, just beyond the state border from Northeast El Paso. It was Saturday, March 11th, when New Mexico State Police officers came across a red Pontiac Grand Am abandoned in the desert. The car was practically new and was found parked off of Anthony Gap, the nickname for New Mexico Highway 404, which runs from the northeast to Anthony, New Mexico, on the west side of the Franklin Mountains. The car was registered to Lourdes, Sofia's mom. NMSP detectives reached out to El Paso police, informing them of what they found. And that's when police knew Sophia wasn't just missing, she was in danger. Sunday morning, a group picking up cans along Macomb Street in the desert of Northeast El Paso came across the partially clothed body of a young woman. They could see she had been shot numerous times in the face and head. Sophia's body was near the Painted Dunes golf course, about 10 to 12 miles from where her car had been found. I was informed that there was a, a, a dead body found out in, in the desert by Painted Dunes. And um, they believed that this was going to be a murder. And so I, I did, I responded to that call. Alvalarde was a sergeant with El Paso Police. He served as the department's public information officer, or spokesman, for several years until retiring in 2001. A large part of his role was to get details about high-profile police investigations and relay that information to the community, mainly through news reporters. Al told me when he arrived at the crime scene in Northeast El Paso, he saw plenty of police officers, lots of reporters, it was eerily busy for an area that typically had very little traffic. He had been on the force since 1980, so by this time, after 20 years, he had seen various crime scenes as a responding officer, as an investigator, and as the spokesman. 
I knew right from the get-go something here is different. Mm. What was it about it that you felt was different? You know, sometimes you just have a sixth sense in these, these things. When you're a police officer, you get there the way the body was just left out in the middle of the desert. Um, there was no car, so clearly she was just left there. My first thoughts weren't that of a domestic violence type situation. This one really came across as, as we've got a, a murder here that's going to be different than what um, El Paso is used to seeing. Al was right, and I had that same feeling as a high school senior myself in March of 2000, learning about the discovery of Sophia's body in the desert. We were the same age. We were graduating the same year. It was shocking thinking something so brutal could happen to someone so young. And her classmates were also stunned. I mean, it's my friend and you'd like never expect anything to happen to you like this or around the community or to anybody that comes to your school. Shaking up, you know, kind of surprised when something like this would actually happen to like a nice person like her. To Al, this case became personal. But it's almost like this is one of your own, but she was, she was our neighborhood, she was my neighborhood, she was the school that I went to, the school that my daughter was going to go to, uh, Burgess High School, and, and so that added to my personal involvement and, and uh, my feelings about what had happened to this young lady. And how this attacker targeted Sophia was even more alarming. Police learned from Sophia's mom that Sophia was going to a club the night she went missing. After searching her car, investigators realized she made one stop beforehand to an ATM. Specifically, she went to the GECU drive through ATM near her house, the ATM on Viscount Boulevard near Airway Boulevard. That's according to the time-stamped receipt they found in her car. Police saw Sophia making the withdrawal. Two ATM surveillance cameras captured the transaction and everything that happened afterward. One camera on the machine captures black and white imagery of the driver's faces. The second camera, mounted onto a neighboring GECU building, captures video in color and is pointed at the front of the ATM. The time code on the video when Sophia's red Pontiac rolls up to the ATM reads 22 hours, 22 minutes, and 10 seconds, 10.22 p.m. Because it's nighttime, the colored video has an orange hue cast by the streetlight. Fifteen seconds pass before we actually see Sophia. She looks almost exactly how she did in that senior photo. Dark hair framing her face, dark red lips. She rolls down her window and begins punching her information into the ATM. Not even a minute later, she has a receipt in hand. Interestingly enough, the digital details of her transaction appear on the surveillance video, so we can tell that at 10.23.02, Sophia pulled $20 from her checking account. She rolled up the window, but remained idling by the ATM. The video's playing back about four times faster than real time, and the camera views alternate back and forth quickly, but you can make out Sophia sitting back, buckling up, looking at the receipt, 
putting it in her bag, and it appears she's also putting away her debit card. At 10.24 and 3 seconds, not even two minutes after pulling up to the ATM, at the bottom of the screen, suddenly, a person appears, standing outside Sophia's front passenger side door. The person's arms are extended, pointing a gun directly at her car. The person is wearing a black sweatshirt and a black beanie. You see the person then dart around the back of the car. Six seconds after emerging into the frame initially, we see the person again, more clearly now a man, standing by the driver's side door. A small black gun is in his right hand, and he seems to reach for her door with his left. Sophia appears hunched over, head down, and then we know that he has shot the window. We can see the glass in the front passenger door is shattered, but still in place. At 10.24 and 12 seconds, we see the man is standing by the back driver's side door. He opens the door and gets in behind Sophia. 15 seconds later, we see Sophia again. She's making another withdrawal. Another 15 seconds pass, and Sophia appears to be holding a tissue or napkin to her face. At 10.25 on the dot, another glimpse. Sophia is reaching her hand out the window to grab the money, and blood is running down from the bridge of her nose and over the left side of her mouth. The digital details of the transaction appear on the video. She had pulled $200. At 10.25 and 45 seconds, Sophia is driving off with the man who shot her and forced her to pull more cash in the car with her. From the time she drove up to the time she drove off, it all happened in the span of three minutes and 35 seconds. When I saw the video, uh, it, was, uh, it was difficult to watch. I can't imagine that it's very often where you have a, a crime where you see someone in the moment that the crime is being committed and you get like a clear look at, at the victim's face and their actions. That had to have been haunting in a way. It, 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 that experience was, uh, it was difficult to see. I mean, this is before the day of videotape out in the streets and where it was very common that people had cell phones and, and today we see crimes taking place all the time. Back then it was not common to see a videotape of a crime actually taking place. I empathized with her because I, I just couldn't understand how she could be in that seat and she could be in the process of being kidnapped, in the process of being shot and injured. And, and just the thought that came through my mind as a human being was this poor girl, yeah. what she had to go through. Sofia's demeanor remains ingrained in retired Sergeant Alva Larde's memory of that harrowing ordeal captured on surveillance video. What I saw was a, a young lady that clearly was undergoing a stressful incident, but she was very calm. Um, I didn't see a young lady panicking and, and, and out of control. She was following direction and doing what apparently she was being told to do. It just stuck to me 
that she was a brave person, that she, during this, because I think most people would be just in a state of panic and, and distress, and they didn't see that. What he and other investigators saw in that video was a horrific, random act of violence carried out by an assailant unknown to the victim. It was random, completely random. And uh, I, I think that was very difficult for our entire community to accept. Um, that doesn't happen in El Paso. Not only unknown to the victim, but also unknown to police. So we had a murderer on the loose. And we knew in this entire neighborhood or the entire uh, city, knew that we had a killer in this community who was still out there and who was willing to kill randomly. Police checked Sophia for DNA and dusted her car for fingerprints, but police found no prints and the DNA didn't match anyone already in the system. All they had was the grainy ATM surveillance camera video. Police took still images of the killer from the video. This was before high definition and digital video, so his facial features were mostly indistinguishable. But he was a white or fair-skinned Hispanic man, thin build, maybe with glasses and a hint of a mustache, likely in his mid-twenties and anywhere from five foot six to five foot nine. Three days since Sofia was killed, police distributed the image and description to newsrooms, and spokesman Alvarez spoke to reporters updating them on the investigation. The heinousness of this particular crime and the fact that we have an individual out there who we have not arrested, we want to make the public aware that this individual has committed a crime of this nature, and we want the public to use caution. It's a crime that could happen to anyone at any time. Police say the unexpected violence factor forces them to warn others. If you're going to be out late at night, do not be alone in the car. We strongly discourage a person to get out on foot in order to withdraw money, but if you're going to be in the car, do not be alone especially after hours, and try to find an ATM machine that is well lit. Shortly after her murder, GECU renovated the ATM where Sophia made her last withdrawal, adding brighter lights and more prominently displayed surveillance cameras. But that was the only immediate change. Tips to the police hotline led nowhere Police questioned the young man Sophia was supposed to meet at the club that Friday night, but got nothing. He hadn't even met her before. The local news was reporting daily on the investigation, but uncovering nothing new about the killer. Meantime, Sophia's friends went to her funeral in disbelief. Oh, it's hard. It's like, I can't face that she's gone. It's hard to believe it. Angry, frustrated, and I hope they find whoever did it. Her classmates organized car washes to raise money for a reward for information leading to an arrest. It's just trying to promote Sophia's name, trying to get the killer off of the streets. Um, hopefully, you know, all this money that we do raise will, you know, have enough courage to come out and say, you know, I know who did it. 
as did the popular hip-hop radio station Power 102. The case was even featured on the television show America's Most Wanted. We know from past experience that in cases like this, when there is a reward offer, we see someone coming forward, and we're hoping that that's what will occur in this case. Someone out there knows the individual that committed this crime. They may have assisted by driving that person. That, if those people come forward, not only can they earn the reward, they can help solve this very terrible crime. Nothing seemed to help because no one came forward, no one was arrested, and for months, the trail was cold. Sofia Martinez's classmates were set for graduation in May. The class of 2000 recognized Sofia during their award ceremony on the eve of graduation. Here's some of the report from the Burgess High School gym. It was very, very horrible. We couldn't believe it, and I hardly knew Sofia, and everybody was crying. Just outside the gym, luminarias glowed brightly with handwritten messages for Sofia Martinez. I think the class of 2000 was affected by Sofia's death, mainly because we know that it was someone close to us, and it could happen to any of us. You know, it was just a matter of chance that it happened to her. Well, I think mostly graduation meant independence for her. Uh, another step in growing up and she, she was looking forward, I guess just to what everyone looks for when they graduate, you know, moving out on their own. That last voice belonged to Marianne Martinez, Sofia's younger sister. The teen had become the voice for her grieving family. By the time graduation rolled around, more than two months had passed since Sofia's death. Her family and the community were on edge, waiting for answers. And police had none to offer. But what I was facing at that time really were questions on the line is, how can we make the community feel safe? And it was very valid questions to be asked because the police department did have a responsibility to say, you're safe, we're working this, we're gonna solve, solve it. But the reality is, in, in, in many cases, it's that one person who knows what happened. And there is always that one person. And I think this case is the perfect example of why people who find themselves in this position, it is so important that they do step forward. Um, because the reality is, I, I can't say that this case could have been solved if not for this one person. There was one person who finally helped break the case wide open more than six months after Sophia's death. That part of the story is next on Borderland Crimes. September 2000 marked six months since 18-year-old Sofia Martinez was abducted from an ATM in East El Paso, sexually assaulted, shot, and left for dead in the desert. There had been no arrests, no credible tips, nothing. 
until the phone rang at the police department headquarters. It was the FBI, and the agent had a tip for detectives. We got this call from a, a lady says, hey, uh, the, I found the burnt up ID that belongs to the, the victim that I saw in, in the paper. That's retired EPPD Sergeant Pete Osegueda. Pete stepped in to manage the investigation earlier that month, shortly after the death of the supervising sergeant. This was the most promising lead to date. And we, we responded to it. We went out there to do some research. Sure enough, the ID belonged to Sophia. What am, why is it here? Who has had it? We started talking to the lady and then she provided more information. Her name was Heather Hawkes. Heather was 20 years old, only two years older than Sophia. Heather told police her estranged husband, Michael Hawkes, had a friend named William Berkeley, and she knew they were both responsible for Sophia's murder. She laid out everything in a five-page statement to police on September 30th, 2000. A voice actor is reading the affidavit. I am here giving this statement because I have information on the murder of Sofia Martinez. I finally decided to come forward because I kept having bad dreams about Sofia's death. I have been sick since I found out about this. Heather said during the first week of March, she went into the hospital with a kidney infection. On the evening of March 10th, she said Michael Hawkes and William Berkeley were in her hospital room, but were heading out. Mike said that they were going to make some money. I assumed that he was going to sell drugs. Mike used to do that. They left when the sun was starting to go down. There was a box of latex gloves in the hospital room. Will stole some of them. He also stole some small packets of Vaseline. I asked him why he was stealing that stuff, and he said, just because. Mike came back to my hospital room later that night, about five or six hours later. It was after 10 p.m. because Heather mentioned the local news was on television. She continued. Mike told me that he and Will had robbed someone at the ATM at the credit union across the street from Hoy Fox. Referring to the car dealership across from the GECU ATM where Sophia was attacked, Heather laid out how she was told the pair carried out the robbery. He said that Will walked over to the ATM and hid in the bushes and waited for a car to show up. Mike waited in the parking lot of Clicks Billiards, ready to pick up Will after Will got the money. Mike said that he saw a car drive up to the ATM, and Will waited until the driver punched in her pin. Will walked up to the car and fired a shot through the window. Mike said Will made the driver get out of the car, and Will took off. Mike tried to follow Will, but he drove too fast. So Mike went back to Clicks, had a few beers, and waited for Will to come back. But he never did. Based on the surveillance video, we know that most of the story is true. But the biggest conflicting detail is Huck has told Heather Berkeley made the driver get out of the car. But that did not happen. The other problem with the story, if Michael Huckus was indeed waiting in and watching from the Clicks Billiards parking lot, 
would he have been able to see what was happening at the ATM? Clicks is a quarter mile away from the ATM, and it's located across the bustling intersection of Airway and Viscount. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he was closer and didn't want to tell Heather. Heather went on, saying it was after midnight when a nurse came and told Hakkis he had a visitor downstairs. It was William Berkeley. Mike said Will had the girl's car and that he needed to get rid of it so there wouldn't be any evidence. Mike said that they were going to take it to the desert and burn it. I asked where they were going to go, and he said that he knew a place out by Juarez. I asked him what kind of car it was, and he said it was a brand new red Pontiac. Heather fell asleep. She told police Hakus was in her room when she awoke at 10 a.m. I don't know what time he came. I remember that Mike was wearing the same clothes he had on the previous night. Mike told me that they had burned the car. For some reason, Michael Huckes lied to Heather both about where they had left Sophia's car and what they did to it. The car was found in Chaparral, not Juarez, and it was fully intact, not burned. Heather was released from the hospital on Saturday, March 11th. She told police she was making dinner, steaks on the grill, at home for herself, her husband, and Berkeley. I asked Will what he was going to do if the girl said something, because she might have seen his face. Will said that he was sure that she saw his face. Will said that he had the girl's ID. Heather said Berkeley handed her the identification card. It was a driver's license. I remember seeing the name, which read Sofia Martinez. The ID was stamped under 21. She was pretty, and I commented on her hairstyle. Mike said Will took the girl's driver's license so that he would know where she lived and keep her from talking. Mike had a keychain that I had never seen before. I asked Mike where he got it, and he said he got it from the girl's car keys. It was a leather chain with the word Pontiac in metal. Heather noted that Michael Huckes had already put his house key on it. I started making the steaks on the grill outside. Will was outside smoking a cigarette. The charcoal was on fire and Will threw the driver's license into the fire. Will watched the license until it was completely burned up. Heather then added this. Will and Mike were both acting like nothing serious happened. They were having a good time like they didn't do anything. Heather said later that day or the following morning, she saw the newspaper and learned the truth. Sophia had been murdered. She saw a photo in the paper and immediately recognized Sophia from the driver's license Berkeley had shown her. I became hysterical. I confronted Mike and he told me not to ask any questions. Mike told me to clean the grill so that the police couldn't do anything to us. I threw the ashes in a plastic bag and threw the bag in the dumpster. Heather said that she and Michael Hakes went downtown. He had to pay a fine for writing a hot check, she said. Mike gave me some money, about $200. It was in 20s. I asked Mike where he got the money. Mike said the money came from the girl. Sophia. Heather said she recognized Berkeley in the still image from the surveillance video that was being plastered on the news, that Berkeley shaved his face and head to disguise his identity, 
that she found the shirt Berkeley was wearing in the surveillance video in Huckus's closet and told her husband to get rid of it. I do want to state that I wanted to come in with this information all of this month, but Mike told me to wait. He wanted to come in with me after he got out of jail. El Paso County jail records show Michael Huckes had been arrested several times since 1996 on numerous traffic violations. But he had been in jail since September 5th, 2000. The charge sheet shows that he had violated probation. He had also been charged with check fraud under $500 and assault family violence. Heather had told police that she left Hawkins after he had hit her at the end of March 2000. Her statement ended with this. Mike said he wanted me to tell the police that he was with me all night. I think Mike just wanted the reward. He said that he would give me half of the reward, and the reward was like $50,000. On September 30th, detectives pulled Michael Hawkes out of his cell at the El Paso County Jail downtown, drove him to police headquarters in central El Paso to interrogate him about his role in Sophia's death, added a capital murder charge to his rap sheet, and drove him back to the jail. News cameras were waiting. The detective kept his hand on a cuffed Hakez once he stepped out of the unmarked squad car. What was that? I didn't do it. That's the voice of Hakez insisting to the photographer he didn't do it and that he was innocent. The 23-year-old was tall and lean, six foot even, not even 150 pounds, clean shaven, a hint of acne scarring on his cheeks and jaw with wire-framed glasses. Heather had described him to police as preppy. Huck has trained his eyes beyond the crowd of photographers and reporters, grimacing and shaking his head as he approached the jail entrance flanked by detectives. William Berkeley wasn't paraded before reporters when he was arrested and charged with capital murder. Police simply released the 21-year-old's mugshot. His dark eyes stared vacantly at something beyond the camera. His dark brown hair was almost a buzz cut, and he had a short goatee. The man in the mugshot clearly resembled the attacker caught on the ATM surveillance camera video. And he also strangely bore a physical resemblance to Hawkins, his best friend. They were even the same height and weight. The chief of police at the time, Carlos Leon, held a news conference the afternoon Berkeley was arrested and charged. I'm very happy to say that uh, William Joseph Berkeley, uh, 21-year-old, has been arrested. Uh, we have obtained a confession. William Joseph Berkeley was arrested this morning at his home in northeast El Paso. Neighbors say he lived there with his parents and a girlfriend who had a very young daughter with Berkeley. Police say a tip on Saturday from the FBI led to the arrest, although his neighbors say Berkeley had known he was under investigation for at least a week. I went down to his house and he didn't want to answer the door. And finally I got him to answer the door and he had me come inside the house and he had all the blinds shut and everything. He was sitting in the living room dark and everything. And he explained to me, he told me to get a hold of my brother so my brother can sign the custody of his daughter, guardianship of his daughter, to take his daughter just in case he got put away. This ABC7 reporter also spoke to Berkeley's grandfather, who lived across the street from his grandson. 
Well, he hasn't given me no trouble because I haven't given him no chance. Right. right. See, I don't keep him here, and I, I don't put up with any of these guys or anything like that. Berkeley's father was less willing to talk, waving away the same reporter who stood on the street yards from the Berkeley's property. Okay, you just need to move out. It's about your business. Okay. Just checking. Just wanted to give you your chance. No, you're just trying to make a story. Sophia's family opened up and shared their thoughts after Berkeley's arrest. Her mom, Lourdes, is translated from Spanish. I know none of this will bring my daughter back, but I'm glad that justice has been served, and it gives me hope for the difficult stage that's ahead of us. Yeah, that he's out of uh, out of the streets, and he's not going to be able to do this to another innocent person. You know, it's not going to bring my sister back, but at least, you know, another family's not going to have to suffer what we went through. That's the voice of Dulce Enriquez, Sofia's older sister. Several news cameras rolled as Dulce, along with younger sister Marianne, took down a red ribbon they had tied to the front door of their home the day police arrested Berkeley. We made them because uh, for Sofia, uh, just, just so people would know we haven't forgotten her and that we had hope and that we were going to give up on the fact that it was going to be solved. I was very glad and I got my red ribbon and threw it away because I didn't need it anymore. I had said I wanted to wear it until they got this killer. I think the worst part is coming. One of the worst parts, you know, having to have face them, having to go through evidence. And, and we're now, now we're going to find out exactly what happened to her. Dulce's prediction rang true. Like the police chief told reporters, both Berkeley and Hawkes confessed to this heinous crime. Heather Hawkes may have given us a glimpse of the sheer horror Sophia experienced. What William Berkeley said he did is in black and white. Once Heather Hawkes named the suspects behind Sofia Martinez's murder as her estranged husband, Michael Hawkes, and his childhood best friend, William Berkeley, police got to work. Like I mentioned, they didn't have to look far to find Hawkes, since he was in jail on unrelated charges. Detectives took him to the police headquarters and read him his rights, and asked him if he would talk to them about what happened to Sofia. Hawkes started off talking about the day Heather went into the hospital and how he was in and out visiting her. William Berkeley often accompanied him, he said. Then he got to March 10th, the day Sophia was murdered. This is a voice actor reading Hawkes' statement. Around 7 p.m., William and I left the hospital and went to his friend's apartment. In Northeast El Paso, on Wren. Before we got there, I told William that I needed to get some money because I had to pay court costs. William said not to worry that he would take care of me. William told me, well, what do you want to do? Break into a house or what? I told him that I didn't know that he was the one who did this kind of thing. We then discussed different ways of getting money, like holding up a store or robbing someone who had money. William then said for us to hold someone up at an ATM. When they got to the friend's apartment, William went in alone. He came out 15 minutes later with a black handgun, a black sweater, 
and a black beanie. All items they needed for a robbery. Huckes continued. We went driving around looking for possible locations. We first went to the GCU in Northeast. William didn't like it because it had too much light and traffic. They scoped out a grocery store in the Northeast before hopping onto US 54, leaving that side of town and heading east on I-10. Got off on airway and we went to the GCU on Viscount. We drove around and William liked it. There was little lighting. We drove around the, the back by the apartments looking for a place to park. Already a different story than he told Heather, Huckus was indeed much closer to the ATM than he indicated. We parked by a rock wall fence close to the street that runs east and west behind the bank. I could see clearly the ATM drive-ups. William got out of the car and I moved to the driver's side. William told me that he was going to the bushes and wait for someone to drive up. He put on the black sweater and beanie. I know he took the gun with him. William ran across the street into the bushes behind the building. That's when Hawkes noticed a newer model car, which turned out to be Sophia's. I started to flash my lights to let him know not to do this. He later told me that he thought it was a signal for him to do it. I didn't see what he did, but I did see him go around to the driver's side. The next thing I know, the car is taking off from the ATM and onto Viscount. When I saw the car taking off and didn't see him running back to our car, I knew that he was in the red car. Hakas didn't tell police that he had tried to follow the car like he had told his wife. Instead, he drove back to the hospital in central El Paso, back to Heather's bedside. He said around 2.30 or 3 a.m., the nurse came and told him that William Berkeley was downstairs. We walked outside. I saw the red car that I saw him robbing at the ATM. I then asked him what happened. Hawkes said Berkeley told him how he tried to shoot out the passenger side window but couldn't, like we saw in the video, how he got into the car through the back door behind the driver. He grabbed her seatbelt and pulled it back. He said she tried driving off, but he stopped her by putting the gun to the back of her head and told her to withdraw $200. Berkeley then told her to drive to the northeast and directed her to the area off McCombs he and Huckes knew well, which they referred to as the spot. Huckes told police during the drive, Berkeley and Sophia talked. Sophia asked him if he wanted sex, but Berkeley told Huckes he refused. She asked Berkeley if she was going to die, but Berkeley said he didn't know yet. Then Hawkes told police what Berkeley had said happened when they arrived at the spot. She asked him again if she was going to die, and he told her, yeah. The girl asked William for a picture that she had in her purse. Police said it was a photo of her nephew. She wanted to see her nephew one last time. Sophia held the photo and then tucked the picture into her bra. They got out of the car, and Berkeley told Huckes he pointed the gun at Sophia's face and fired a shot, then again, unloading the handgun as she lay on the ground. Huckes told police what Berkeley said he did next. He said he looked down at her and smiled. Huckes said 
As Berkeley finished his story, they were standing together outside the hospital. Then Berkeley told Hawkes he needed to get rid of Sophia's car. Hawkes said he followed him in Berkeley's car to the Anthony Gap, where Berkeley left Sophia's vehicle. Hawkes took Berkeley back to the apartment he shared with his wife in the Northeast and then went back to the hospital. Hawkes laid out to detectives how they got rid of the rest of the evidence. He said Berkeley had Sophia's license. He recognized her photo because he had seen it in the paper and car keys. Berkeley threw the ID into the grill fire, and Huckus said he threw the keys onto the roof of the apartment. The driver's license and keys would tie both Huckus and Berkeley to Sofia's murder. Retired Sergeant Pete Osegueda told me they rushed to the apartment complex where Heather and Michael had lived at the time of the murder. Well, we knew that we had to look for everything that we could, so we started doing a research of the whole area, the grounds where they were at, it was an apartment complex. They went up to the roof to see it, and sure enough, there were the keys. Detectives interrogated Berkeley on October 1st, and again on October 3rd. His first statement to police was vague and varied from Hawkes's account of what happened. For instance, Berkeley took the lion's share of responsibility, saying he was the one who needed $200. He didn't mention scoping out potential spots to rob with Hawkes. Instead, saying he went straight to the ATM on Viscount and held up Sofia Martinez, that he took her to the desert, then, quote, freaked out, and the gun went off. He initially told police he didn't remember if he killed her. He ended his initial statement with this remark, read by a voice actor. I do want to say that I did not intend for this to happen. All I wanted was the money. I was going to let her go out there in the desert and just take the car. I just freaked out. After Berkeley's dad visited him at the jail, Berkeley asked police if he could give another confession. He was far more detailed the second time, and far less to blame, according to him, for the robbery and murder. I want to start by saying that I did not tell the entire truth in my first statement. Mike had more to do with this than I first said. Mike was the one that needed money. He said he needed the money to pay his probation. He wanted to rob someone coming out of a, a grocery store or something like that. Berkeley told police he didn't like the idea of committing robbery, and he claimed Huckus told him to steal a gun from his dad, that they were looking at bullets together at a Walmart store, but that it was Huckus who bought them, that Huckus was the one who tested the gun to make sure it worked. After leaving the hospital on March 10th to scope out locations to rob, Berkeley told police he told Huckus he didn't like the whole idea. Mike drove us to the GECU on Viscount. We checked out the area and he told me to make sure I keep my head down so the camera wouldn't see my face. He told me to go behind the bushes. We decided that flashing the parking lights would be the signal to go. I asked Mike what he would do if I shot the driver. He shrugged his shoulders and told me he didn't care. He told me to make sure I didn't leave any evidence behind. And that if anyone saw my face, I should do what I have to do. Seeming to imply that Huckus was urging him to kill any witnesses. 
Berkeley said he told Huckus to follow him, that he'd be going to the spot. A red car drove up and Mike started flashing the lights. Berkeley's account of how he robbed Sophia is identical to Huckus's. After he counted the money, he told Sophia to drive off. Berkeley said he couldn't see Huckus or the car, so he told Sophia to head to the northeast. Berkeley said he climbed into the front seat and Sophia asked if she was bleeding and asked him if he had shot her. Berkeley said he made her pull over and then he began to drive because he didn't want her to pass out while she was driving. There are parts of both his first and second confession that are, quite frankly, disgusting and hard to believe. And I don't want to dignify his accounting of Sophia's behavior by laying them out here. I asked retired Sergeant Pete Osegueda what he thought of those parts of Berkeley's confession. What went through your mind as an investigator? That, that he was crazy because uh, he was just trying to use that as a, a way out. I mean, obviously, you got somebody at gunpoint, you know, that there's no way they're going to come on to you. You know, he, she was a victim. She was a victim. He took full advantage of that. There's no way that she was going to come on to him, no. Berkeley confessed to shooting Sophia in the desert. I just kept firing. I continued to fire the gun after she fell to the ground. Berkeley said he passed out, woke up, saw Sophia lying on the ground, got scared, and then drove to the hospital to meet Huckes. Again, Berkeley said it was Huckes who took the lead and decided they should ditch the car off Anthony Gap. Berkeley drove through a fence and took the keys after Huckes told him to. Huckes drove them in Berkeley's car to the hospital, and then Berkeley went home. He had been living with Huckes and his wife, and Berkeley said the next day, Huckes told him Heather wanted Berkeley out of the apartment. I asked Mike if he told Heather, and he said he told her part of the story. I was, I was angry because we vowed to each other that if the cops came to me first, I was supposed to go down for this. And if the cops came to him first, he was supposed to go down. We were supposed to be brothers. Berkeley told police he went back to the apartment where Huckus lived with his wife, Heather, for a barbecue. He said he didn't remember much about that day except burning Sophia's driver's license. He said Huckus took her car keys from him, but didn't know what Huckus did with them. Berkeley said when he saw the surveillance images from the GECU on the news, he recognized himself and shaved his goatee. It's very hard to keep uh, something like that to yourself. Your conscience eats away at you, and uh, I don't think that was very hard to do. Once, once we had every evidence, we could prove this is you. We got all the evidence here. So once he saw that, I think he kind of saw that it was a lost case. Despite two confessions, William Berkeley pleaded not guilty to capital murder. He seemed to want to take a chance that he could avoid a conviction and a punishment of execution. William Berkeley's capital murder trial was first. 
It began more than two years after the murder of Sofia Martinez on April 15, 2002. Christina Montoya Halter was a reporter for KVIA at the time and covered Berkeley's trial. I remember being shocked um, because I grew up in this community like you. Um, and I think as a young woman um, in high school and coming back after college, I would go out to nightclubs and go out to parties, drive by myself at night. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that strikes me and that I recall that I, that I was shocked to hear that something like that would ever happen here in El Paso. We didn't think a lot about that. Going to an ATM at 10 p.m. at night was something a lot of us do. So to have that being threatened, you know, knowing that that could happen here in El Paso, where we feel relatively safe, you know, all the time, um, was a shock. Christina was in the courtroom to gather testimony for her reports on KVIA, but news cameras were not allowed. The only footage of the trial happening inside the 243rd District Court is from outside the courtroom through a door window. Berkeley was at the defense table. He wore a dress shirt, a tie, slacks, and dress shoes. He had wire-framed round glasses and a goatee. He was animated, often rocking in the swivel chair and occasionally glancing around the courtroom. Heather Huckes, the ex-wife of Berkeley's childhood friend and accused accomplice Michael Huckes, testified about what she saw and heard from her husband shortly after the murder. Investigators testified about what they found in the Hawkes' apartment, at the ATM the night Sophia was abducted, that there was evidence Sophia had been sexually assaulted and the DNA matched Berkeley. Sophia had been shot numerous times in the head and face, and the prosecution had a model head showing the bullet projectiles. Investigators said the bullets matched the gun that belonged to Berkeley's father. Sofia's sister Dulce spoke to Christina after two days of testimony. It's been hard because it's like having to go through it, you know, for a second, second part. That's the second part of our nightmare, actually. But uh, like I said before, we're, we're holding on strong. Christina told me she was moved by the family's decision to talk to reporters throughout their terrible ordeal. The fact that something so traumatic to happen to their family, um, to be even able to have composure to talk about it at the time, um, you know, I probably didn't realize it as much then as I do now as a mother. Uh -huh. But I can imagine how hard it must have been for them. Christina, like many reporters, didn't allow her personal feelings or opinions to interfere with her reporting. But she did remember hearing Berkeley's father, Stephen, take the stand in his son's defense. Stephen Berkeley told the court his son and Sophia were friends and that he had actually met Sophia when they were dating. It's an account refuted by not just Sophia's family, but also the evidence. 
Even Berkeley himself never said he knew Sophia in either of his confessions. Christina didn't imply how that testimony made her feel at the time, only telling me now, nearly 21 years later. And that was quite um, repulsive, I think, you know, knowing that, I mean, how could that happen? And you're grabbing her at an ATM and shooting her, you know, to even come up with that kind of a story um, is an insult, you know, to her, her and her family, absolutely. The trial lasted four days. The jury reached a verdict on April 19, 2002. Christina filed the report from the El Paso County Courthouse. William Joseph Berkeley has been found guilty of murdering 18-year-old Sofia Martinez. But that was only the first part of this trial. Now the jury must make another decision. They must decide whether Berkeley should pay for his crime with his life. We're in the punishment phase where they make the decision of whether it's life imprisonment or death. And, you know, I'm more interested in, I haven't really reacted to the, you know, I know it's a guilty and, and I accept their verdict and now I'm going to try to save his life. The jury has heard several of the prosecution's witnesses, including Dr. Edward Grippon, a forensic psychiatrist. Grippon reviewed evidence from the case, including Berkeley's two statements to police. He tells the jury he considers Berkeley a continuing threat to society. After hearing one of Berkeley's statements read aloud in the courtroom, he told the jury, quote, This seems to be a very self-serving confession. He's concerned about hurting himself, and there's clearly not a concern for her welfare. Jurors also heard from Heather Hawkes, the wife of co-defendant Michael Hawkes. She says Berkeley got into fights, including once when he attacked a man with a brick. The jury also heard from some of Berkeley's childhood friends. Some say he drank, did drugs often, and got into many fights. But others say he was a good friend who struggled to fit in. The defense argues Berkeley's violence is only a defense, and he's really a wannabe tough guy. Ultimately, the jury decided that Berkeley was a continuing threat to society. They overlooked the pleas from his mother to spare his life and let him be rehabilitated. Instead, the jury did what the prosecution asked. They sent Berkeley a message. And on April 22, 2002, they sentenced him to die by lethal injection. Christina reflected on the outcome. I think the biggest thing that struck me was there was no... Um, I covered a lot of trials and um, I had seen defendants appear remorseful or apologetic. Um, and that wasn't the case at all. He just seemed like a cold-hearted person, really, um, that did not take responsibility for it at all. And I think I got that feeling even more when he walked out of the chambers by me, and I, I got that cold feeling. Michael Hawkes pleaded not guilty to capital murder. His trial was moved to San Antonio due to the high-profile nature of the case. 
and on November 7, 2002, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Within days, he filed an appeal of his conviction. The appeals process took two years. In the opinion, written in 2004, the appellate court defined who can be held liable for capital murder. Someone can be charged with capital murder in the state of Texas if they kill someone in the act of committing or attempting to commit robbery. In this case, the court said, Hakas is criminally responsible for Berkeley murdering Sophia because he helped plan and execute the robbery at the ATM. Hakas may not have pulled the trigger himself, the justices ruled, but he knew that Berkeley had a gun. He witnessed Berkeley shoot Sophia. Berkeley told Hawkes what he had done, and Hawkes helped Berkeley cover it up. The state appellate court upheld Hawkes' conviction. He remains locked up in the Stiles Unit, a maximum security facility 900 miles away from El Paso, near the Texas-Louisiana border. Hawkes is now 45. State records show he'll be eligible for parole November 7, 2042. By that time, he will have served 40 years behind bars. William Berkeley also appealed his conviction, but it was upheld by various courts in the state of Texas each time over a five-year span, starting in 2005. He was scheduled to die by lethal injection on April 22, 2010, exactly eight years to the day that he was convicted and more than 10 years since he killed Sofia Martinez. KVIA reporter Ken Molestina covered Berkeley's execution. Ken went to Huntsville to serve as a media witness to Berkeley's lethal injection. He had not received a stay. There were several uh, chances to appeal and, and, and to, to try and receive a stay in the execution, and it, and it wasn't happening. So all the indications were that this was going to happen. Ken had served as the crime reporter for KVIA for several years. He figured this would be the last time Berkeley could own up to his actions. Remember, although he had confessed in writing to abducting, raping, and shooting and killing Sophia, Berkeley later said he wasn't responsible for the heinous crime. Ken sent letters to Berkeley asking if he would be granting final interviews on death row. We received a letter that William Joseph Berkeley was in fact going to um, agree to an interview with us. Ken and I spoke over Zoom. He's now a reporter in Dallas, but he still remembers how he was struck by the importance of telling the story right. He had come to El Paso in 2007 and ingratiated himself in the community. He was friendly with people who were involved in the case, from law enforcement to Sophia's sister, Marianne. I felt a great sense of responsibility uh, to, to treat this story with the utmost respect for the family, for Sophia's family, uh, because they all very much, they were all still in El Paso. They all very, you know, they, they, they tuned into the news. Uh, it, it didn't take long, Stephanie, to, to understand the magnitude of what we were doing. Providing what we could um, as journalists um, so that folks who wanted that closure, who needed that closure, could somehow uh, arrive at that point. We don't often get to talk to people who are convicted of crimes and who are going to be executed. 
How do you handle that? How did you handle that interview? So it's funny because I, I had no real reference point at the time. As you mentioned, it was my first job out of college. I think I was three years, maybe four years, about three or four years into the gig. Never had uh, done something like this or, or dealt in such a dark space. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, just the overwhelming experience of it all, uh, walking through that prison, being escorted by guards into death row, uh, turning that corner into the bay where I would sit face to face with him. And that moment you turn around and there he is behind the glass and he's just, he's waiting on you because he knows that you're there to interview him. And all of that is super heightened, right? All the senses, everything. So I, I knew that um, he agreed to talk, right? So I already knew that going into it, he had a disposition where he had something he wanted to say. Um, so I knew that he had things that he wanted to say I knew that he wanted to be heard. So at this point, you're talking to a guy who's gonna die by lethal injection the next morning. Uh, all stays, all appeals, you know, nothing has gone through. Um, so listen to him, listen to what he has to say. Ken met with Berkeley at the Polunsky unit the morning before the execution. He was sitting across from him, separated by glass, talking through a black phone. Berkeley was in a white prison jumpsuit. His hair was nearly shaved to his scalp. A bit of shadow covered his jaw, and he still wore wire-framed glasses. They spoke for nearly an hour, but their conversation was boiled down for Ken's report that aired that night in El Paso. We spoke about his crime and how he'll pay. Death is a very odd and mysterious thing. I mean, some people will just kind of be straight-faced about it. Other people just get hysterical. Berkeley's execution is imminent unless he's granted a last-minute stay. Prosecutors used stacks of evidence to prove that he did it. But even 10 years later, Berkeley maintains his innocence. I'm not going to apologize for killing her because I didn't kill her. I'm sorry she's dead, but I'm not going to apologize for killing her when I didn't kill her. Have you come to terms with your sentence? I mean, how, how yeah. do you feel about it? I mean, are you, are, you, are you scared to die? In, in a way, yes, but in a way, no. I mean, in, yes, because, you, you know, you, you don't know what's on the other side. But at, at other times, it's kind of like I try to block it out and not deal with it. You know what I mean? What he has been dealing with all the years he's been sitting in death row is his label, that of a murderer, a label he vehemently rejects. If you want to believe that, that's fine. Sooner or later, you'll find out the truth. The truth will come out in the long run. That's all that matters. Berkeley describes death row as both heaven and hell, a place where he's learned a lot and, according to him, lost more. And just before we ended our conversation, he offered this message to the loved ones of Sofia Martinez. As far as Sofia's family goes, I'm praying for them. I hope they get the closure they need. And I feel sympathy for them, but I'm not going to apologize for murdering her when I didn't kill her. He denied it the entire time. Um, you know, he told us things that I'm sure were very upsetting to the family if they if they heard it, if they hadn't already heard it. Uh, things like, uh, you know, her and I were actually in a consensual relationship and I knew her. Uh, that wasn't a random encounter that night um, because I asked him, how do, you, how do you justify the fact that they found DNA evidence? You could tell that he wasn't um, all there, uh, that perhaps he was believing his own lies. Uh, there was nothing, nothing, nothing 
uh, of evidence and, and, and documentation and, and court filings, anything that suggested that any of the stuff that he was saying was true. But that was the story that Berkeley wanted to be true. That was the story he told himself over and over in his mind, alone in his prison cell, until his version of the truth became his reality. Then true reality set in, and Berkeley was put to death the next day. Here's Ken's report, filed in the hours after William Berkeley was pronounced dead. The typical sounds of spring mixed with death penalty protesters outside the Huntsville unit. Just before 5 p.m. El Paso time, witnesses to William Joseph Berkeley's execution were escorted inside, myself included. Berkeley told his girlfriend he loved her, then asked her and others to look out for his daughter, who he called his little princess. He made a mention of death before dishonor and then said, quote, Warden, let her rip. The night she was murdered, she had no fanfare. There was no witness list, no chaplain to pray for her, no appeals, no last meal. Sophia's sister, Marianne Martinez, gave a brief statement shortly after the execution. She says she, her mom, and sister felt they needed to see Berkeley die. We weren't there with her the last night that she died, the night she needed us the most. That's why today we felt we had to be here to represent her. The execution took about seven minutes. None of the witnesses spoke and there was almost no movement. Sophia's family says they wanted to carry on the memory of Sophia. Today is not about revenge. Today is not about closure. Making peace with her death and her absence only comes from God. Today is not about anyone else other than my sister. That day marked the closing of a terrible chapter for both Sophia's family and the El Paso community. But I do think knowing the people of El Paso the way that I think I do, um, that there was a collective sigh of relief that was felt because that was completely finalized. Um, the sheer horror behind those events um, that spread throughout El Paso during that time. I mean, people were still talking about how they never used to close doors, leave garage doors open and things like that. And then that when the Sofia Martinez case happened and they knew they had a killer out on the loose, that that changed everything. And that that was the moment that they remember of why they still up to that moment, still locked doors and still, you know, did things where they didn't really used to do it all the time in El Paso. The murderers were caught, locked up, one was executed. I get chills to think that they could have gotten away with it, and they almost did. For months, police didn't know who was responsible, and Berkeley and Hakez kept quiet. But the one other person who knew about their roles finally spoke up, Hakez's wife, Heather. If that lady would not have called us in and given us that information that she recognized the, the ID uh, photograph to the one that had been uh, shown on TV for, for Sofia, I don't know that we would have solved it. I wanted to ask Heather why, after learning about Sofia's murder the day after it happened, it took her nearly seven months to go to police. 
Heather had told police in September 2000 she had decided to come forward because she had been sick and suffering nightmares about Sophia's death. But did she hit a breaking point? And how did she feel knowing that the investigation was solved because she spoke up? That her actions led to the arrest, conviction, and sentencing of not just William Berkeley, but also her ex-husband, Michael Huckis. I couldn't get the answers to those questions. Heather died on May 23, 2016, in El Paso, at the age of 35. She had dropped the last name Huckes shortly after the divorce went final in 2002, and she reverted to another name legally and on social media. I reached out to Heather's sister to see if she would be willing to talk with me about what had to have been a difficult time in her sister's life. She responded to my message saying, on behalf of Heather and Heather's kids, she had no comment. Marianne Martinez went on to become a local television news reporter, and we actually worked together for a time at KVIA here in El Paso. Marianne now works for a national publication covering border issues, and we remain friendly. But when I asked if she'd be willing to talk with me about her sister, she politely declined. So much time has passed, she told me. She no longer thinks about Sophia as a victim. She and her family have found a sort of quiet acceptance. And I understand, I wouldn't want to disrupt their peace. I simply hope Sophia's story serves as a reminder, especially to young women, to be vigilant about their safety, because what happened to Sofia Martinez really could happen to anybody. Borderland Crimes is a podcast researched, written, and edited by me, Stephanie Valle. KVIA's promotions manager, John McMinn, helped with the interviews. The voice actors were Sam Harris-Simowitz, Emma Hoggard, and Larry Monaris. Thanks to those who shared their memories with me, as painful or uncomfortable as they are. And thank you for listening and subscribing. Thank you.